Thanks, Tim. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm Brian Haybig, and um, one of the pastors here in downtown. That was Tim Udodge, who still one of our pastors, but soon to be pastor of Grace and Peace and the organizing pastor of Grace and Peace. We have new microphones. Let me just go ahead and say it. We've got new microphones. And I've avoided this as long as I could because, to me, they were Britney Spears mics. And I've come to realize they're, they're everybody's mics now. They're TED Talk mics and all kinds of mics. So hopefully they'll make where our voices are not as strained and the sound is more uniform and our podcast has better audio. Um, and we may dance a little bit. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll just see what happens. If you're visiting, we just started a new sermon series last week. And so you're, you're not behind and it's, uh, we're going to do this for the next 12 weeks or so on the life of David, the famous David from the Bible, King David. So we'll be in the Old Testament. And we've got a long passage, and I, I'm probably going to read this as quickly as I've ever read a passage. That's not to be irreverent, but for time. And I know that the, the insert, the, the font is just punishing. Just uh, do the best you can. That's not even the whole chapter. We wanted to give you enough that you've got a sense of the flow. But last week when we started, we, we looked at David being anointed by the prophet Samuel. That's who these books are named after, First and Second Samuel. And set apart as the king. Now, at that point when that happened, and in this passage this morning, he's not sitting on the throne yet. So David has been anointed the rightful king, but he's not sitting on his throne doing his thing. That's, that's still to come. But he has been set apart and anointed, not just with oil, but with power from God. Let me say uh, one other thing about background. You're going to see this term, the Philistines. They come up a lot in the Old Testament. They were arch rivals of God's people, the Israelites. I'm not an expert about the Philistines, but they lived in what we call the Promised Land, Canaan. They were coastal people. Most of their major cities were on the coast. They knew about shipbuilding and that kind of thing. Knew about weaponry. At one point in Israel's history, they would take their stuff to Philistia uh, to do metalwork for tools or weapons or whatever. So really had the advantage in that area. Knew what they were doing with swords and spears and that kind of thing. Uh, archaeological finds will find like uh, they knew how to make beer and wine and all that. So knew how to war. Knew how to have a good time. The Philistines. Formidable foe of the Israelites. And so when you think about what Israel is up against in this passage, it's an army that is intimidating with better stuff. 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a, ch a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, 
Why have you come out here to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Down in verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse, that's his father, had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the, men of, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away the reproach for Israel from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch, his Sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. 
Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father... We pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We had a discovery class this morning. We're talking about our community groups as part of our church. And I mentioned last week, strongly urging you to be a part of one. And uh, Dana and I are in one. We host one. Had a discussion this past week about last week's passage. We're covering all kinds of different ground. But one of the things that came up was if... Now, we've got all kinds of ages in the room. But I'm saying, as a 20-something, thinking as a Christian, if someone had asked me, Brian, if something took you down spiritually, if God let you you live into your 70s, 80s, whatever, if something took you down spiritually, what would it be? Uh, I don't know what I would have guessed. I, I mean, it might have been to do something really splashy, just something very scandalous or immoral or uh, just kind of the, the biggies. But the one that I would not have been able to guess in my 20s, certainly not in my teens, that I'm, I'm understanding a little bit more now as I'm getting closer to 50, and I think I'll understand a lot more as I get older, if God lets me get older, is Despair. And it's been interesting to talk with some of you about this who have crested 40, 50, 60, to hear it come up more in discussions. Is The long and the short of it is you, you, can, you can zoom the camera out on this as wide as you want to go or tighten the camera as close as you want to go. If you want to zoom out wide, is just that the world is so messed up. And, I mean, just the stuff that we know about is enough to demonstrate that. There's all these people and places and things that, that we don't know anything about. We just kind of know the news cycle and things we're interested in and places we've been. But there's so much poverty and so much abuse of children and so much human trafficking 
and so much famine and so much corrupt leadership and so much ignorance and violence and other things. It's unfixable through anything that we can do. And I've used this example several times, so if you've heard this before, bear with me. But it just, this drove it home to me so much. I heard the statistic that right before the, the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, before the earthquake, there were 10,000 NGOs, non-governmental organizations working in Haiti, all kinds of nonprofits trying to do stuff for the betterment of those people. 10,000 in that little country. And the, the, the noticeable effect was negligible. Before the earthquake, then the earthquake hit. And you know, we've got people in our church who, they, you know, they were Haiti before Haiti was cool. They, they have a real heart for it, have been there, logged time with it. Some have fallen in love with children there and been through the difficult process of bringing them here and making them part of their family. Like, they have, they have skin in the game. But none of us have fixed it. Right? And that's one little country. Or you can zoom the camera way in on, on us. Because, I, again, I'll use myself as an example. I'm a, I became a Christian in my mid-teens, as best as I know. And I would have thought, hey, by the time you get to be 48 years old, boy, you'll have that part of you fixed. You'll have a handle on that. And I don't. And I've got my version of that, and you've got yours. And, you know, it's the feeling of, we're not talking about just some little ass, like, you know, a hard day or this, you know, like little temporary challenge in my life. We're talking about these big, formidable things that I don't have the resources to fix it and no one in my life has the resources to fix it. Now, you've got to understand, that is the position of the Israelites. They are up against a foe that they cannot beat. Within, the, within their own resources, from their own resources. This is a war passage. So let me, let me I, I, I want to think about it through these, these points. Here's, here's my points. The real war, the real system, and then the real weapon. Right, the real war, the real system, and the real weapon. This is a famous story. Not everybody here grew up in church, but if you grew up in church, I bet you heard this story when you were little, and you might have had little cut-out figures of, of David and Goliath. The tall one is Goliath, just to let you know. About nine feet tall. And just, by the way, I don't know if that seems fictitious or mythic to you, but the Bible presents a picture, even from the book of Genesis, that along with diversity of strengths and weaknesses and skin colors and all that, that there was actually a diversity of heights and that the biggest people on the face of the earth was a race called the Anakim. And the last of the Anakim settled in a city called, guess what, Gath, which is where Goliath was some, is from. So this is presented as a historic narrative, not as a myth. But the famous story is David and Goliath, but is that the big battle? Is, is that what the whole chapter is about? The chapter is about a bigger battle. Now look in verse 2. Maybe this is stating the obvious, but I want you to, to, to get this. Verse 2, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Verse 21, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. The chapter is about the army of Israel versus the army of Philistia. Now, so 
Zoom the camera in, David and Goliath. Zoom the camera out, Israel versus Philistia. But can you zoom the camera out further to see the bigger war? What's, what's the real war? Now, I want you to see this. First off, about Israel. Look at this repeated phrase, and I don't know if you noticed it because I was reading so quickly. Look in verse 26. David asked about who is this guy that he should defy the armies of the living God. Then go down to verse 36. This Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Go down to verse 45. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Now, why is that important? That that keeps being repeated by David. He's saying, this, this Israelite army doesn't just represent themselves. They don't just represent the 12 tribes. But they represent God. They're God's army. Are they God's army because they're good people? No. That's, that's plain in the passage. They're not trusting God. Are they God's army because they're good? No. They're God's army because He set them apart and made them His army. But they represent Him. What about the Philistine army? And there's a recurring term all through this chapter. Every Old Testament commentary I looked at pointed this out. There's the repetition of some form of the Hebrew term for defy or defiance. And it's clearest in verse, go back to verse 45. David talking to Goliath. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Now, note the grammar. It's not just, Goliath, that you've defied the Israelites as an ethnic group, but you defied the person who's behind the Israelite army, which means you have defied God. Now, the Bible would say that this is the great story of human history, at least since things went bad. Because if you want to zoom the camera all the way out, as far as it'll go, go back to Genesis. When sin entered the world, and God says to the serpent, you're going to crawl on the ground, on your belly, and I'm going to put enmity, hostility, between the seed of the woman and your seed. What does that mean? Does that mean Eve's kids and snake kids? That, that's, it's a way of saying, I'm going to put an enmity and a hostility between those who identify with the one true God and believe Him, trust Him, look to Him, follow Him. There's going to be hostility between them and an entire global system of defying God. The shorthand term for that in the New Testament is the world. That doesn't just mean earth. Defiance of God. This is a microcosm of the great war. And the reason I'm, I'm belaboring this a little bit is, yeah, it's a militaristic passage, but if you read it in a detached way like, wow, I'm sure glad I don't have to fight people with swords and spears because that would be scary. Yes, it would. Does that mean you're not in war? 
the Old Testament and the New Testament agree that when you identify yourself with the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prepare for a life of war. That it uses the imagery that you are in a war. And understand what I mean by that. Because Christians have done an awful job of sending all the wrong signals. We, and talk to someone who's not a Christian and knows that he or she is not a Christian and, and see, see if this resonates. How, how do my people, how do Christians come across to you? And they're probably going to describe some version of us versus them, like we're the good people and we're not like them. As if the war is us, the good people, versus you, the yucky people. That is not the biblical war. The biblical war, if you want to be theological about it, is that there's an unholy trinity. The devil, which the Bible believes is real, Jesus dialogued with him. That's how it really is. The world, that global system of defiance, and this is really important, the flesh. And the flesh is not talking about human flesh. It's talking about that system of defiance in the world is in here too. And it shows itself in all kinds of ways. The war is God warring against the world, not the earth, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it warring back. And when you when you if I can put it this way, hitch yourself or you become hitched to God's wagon, you enter that war. That should affect how we talk to people about the Christian life. It should affect how we teach children. Are we, te are we, are we teaching children, hey, we want you to believe these things so that you'll have a great life or so that you'll behave? Yeah, we'd like our children to behave. We'd like them to have stability. But are, do we want you to believe this to up your comfort Following God will not up your comfort in this life. Because that's the nature of war. That's the real war. What about the real system? What do we mean by that? Goliath throws out a challenge that all kinds of nations did this. You pick your guy, he'll be your champion. That's what that term means. I'm the champion for the Philistines will fight. If he kills me, we'll serve you. If I kill him, you'll serve us. And I, I don't know what serving the Philistines would look like, but not good. So that, that's not an unusual thing to throw out. And I don't know if you noticed this, but after verse 23, it says, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of, of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. That's the last time his name is used in this passage. After that, what is it? The Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine. Now, why is that important? Because what the text is saying through the way it's worded, he's not just Goliath the man. He is the Philistines. Embodied. Who should have been the Israelite champion? King Saul. And when God's people asked for him to be king, they said that's what he would do. Look down at the bottom, 
right after the end of this passage, this part in italics. This is from earlier in 1 Samuel. You know, God told Samuel, the reason these people want a king, an earthly king, is because they don't want me to be their king. And Samuel told them that, and they said, nope, nope. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. How did that go? Look in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And those two terms are used in the book of Deuteronomy. And God says, when you go into the promised land and there are these really intimidating enemies, don't be afraid and don't be dismayed. And whoever wrote 1 Samuel took those two terms and put them in the narrative to say that's exactly what they are. When God said, don't do that, just trust me. If you get no other point as far as the bad news from this sermon, hear this. All this is demonstrating is an old, old, old reality, and it's this. God's people cannot manufacture their own rescue. The people of God cannot manufacture their own rescue. No human beings can, but even the ones who believe that He exists. And we would say that we understand that point. We don't understand that point. Uh, Whether big or small, when, when we look at what dismays us and terrifies us, Our default response is to try to come up with our own strategy or our own resources to fight it. For instance, now I don't know if this will be an odd example to use because this could look like such a positive thing. But think about, you know, we talk about it's great to have good people around you. It's great to have a good network of friends. It's great to work with good people in your business. It's great to have like a good counselor that you can sit down with and can speak truth into your life. It's great to have a good church. And yes to all of the above. Yes to all of the above. I'd want that for anybody. Our hearts are so sneaky that having those things can be a way not to need God. In other words, when the things that come into my life, old or new, that, are, that dismay me, they terrify me, they overwhelm me, I don't know what to do with them whether that's my heart breaks about all this ISIS stuff or the fact that I thought that 20 years into being a Christian, I would stop doing X and I haven't stopped doing X. And it makes me wonder if I'm just going to be this way the rest of my life. And I don't know what to do about it. It's great to have friends, counselor, pastor, church, whatever. But, you know, those can actually be a way that we're trying to throw those things at the thing that terrifies us, rather than going to God with empty hands and saying, I don't know what to do. I'm completely overwhelmed. Because take it from experience from me, that to come to God empty-handed and to say, I don't know what to do, and I can't handle this, goes to the very root of our what? Our pride, and we hate doing that. I'll be your king. Yeah, we want an earthly king. 
we'll be like the other nations and our king will go out and fight for us. We're glad that you're there, God, to be in the wings in case something goes south. God's people cannot manufacture their own rescue. So what does God do? And here's the interesting thing. Like, Goliath would have thought, I'm just kind of doing what people do. You pick your guy, I'm our guy, and that'll determine it. And that was an old system, but there's an older system. The older system, way older than Goliath would understand, is that God chooses his man to represent the many. That goes all the way back to the first man, Adam. We did not elect Adam to represent us. God put Adam in the garden to represent all humanity and act for us. And it didn't go well. The one man who could go into the tabernacle, the temple, the Holy of Holies, one time of year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest, that was not someone that we just elected from whatever tribe, whoever we were inclined to pick. God raised up the high priest to represent the many. The people try to manufacture their own rescue. We'll have a king, we'll have a person who leads us in battle. God raises up his man. And I've never noticed this before, but verse 26 is the first thing you hear David say in the whole Bible. Verse 26 is the first quote by David. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the irony is, again, we look on the outward appearance. The guy asking this question walked up. He wasn't even a combatant. He's there to visit his brothers. But he's God's anointed. And he becomes the combatant and the rescuer because he's the anointed one. That's the old system. Well, what, what's the great weapon? Um, and again, I, you've heard me say this many times. The way this is often taught and preached, and I'm sure I've done it at some point in the past, is like, okay, David represents you, and Goliath is an awful supervisor, or a challenging time in your life, or the meanest person in your high school. And so here you are, and here's Goliath, and, you know, God can give you strength to overcome your, your, your Goliath. And it's, al- it's almost like saying, like, there's sort of a knob in us of, you know, of awesomeness. And my awesomeness only goes up to, like, two, but if you trust God, he can turn it up to, like, eight. And it'll be awesome. Okay, what, is, what does David say as the anointed one, when he squares off with Goliath. And this is one of the great passages. It's just a great passage. Verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. And I would say to you, if you feel a lift when you hear that, 
you know, the purpose of worship is not to get you pumped up and get you fired up. But if, if that, like, gives you a lift in your heart, it's supposed to. Because here's the amazing thing. It's not like, yeah, like there's that great speech that Luke gives when he says he's not going to turn to the dark side, but he's always going to be a Jedi. And this is like that. Well, yeah, that is, that, well, that is a great speech. But this is not just like one myth of many of like, you know, Luke tossing his lightsaber. I'll never turn. I'm a Jedi. Like my father, you know, this makes, yes. This is supposed to make you go, yes, because it's true. And this is the part that gets lost. David steps out and says, the way I'm about to do what I'm about to do is not through weapons. He uses a weapon as a means. But the reason I'm about to do what I'm about to do is because of who God is. All right, simple point, hard to get. As the anointed one, what David went out there was not his strength, courage. He went out there with the weapon of who God is. And he defeated him. And when he individually defeated Goliath, all Israel got credit for it. So then that fixed Israel, right? No more problems in the monarchy. No more problems with the Israelites. No more spiritual buffoonery in the whole Old Testament. David's monarchy, we're going to talk about this, his family life, the rest of Israelite history, riddled with problems. We can't manufacture our own rescue. God has to raise up his man. And God raises up men. God raises up anointed leaders. Do they ever get it all the way there? What is this pushing us to? When we read these kind of accounts, we're supposed to, on the one hand, rejoice, but as we keep reading, we're supposed to feel like, can't some anointed one come and fix the whole thing? That's what the Bible's about. Is that God raised up one who was the capital A anointed one. That's what Messiah means. The anointed one. That's what Christ means. The anointed one. Who does what we cannot do. Who, in a sense, squares off directly with the world as a global defiant system and the devil and even what is utterly wrong with us and defeats it. If you don't know what all that means, I hope you'll keep coming because this is what we're talking about all the time. But I want you to think about what does it mean to take the word of the Lord and go into battle with it? You know, I, several, several commentaries pointed out the description of Goliath and his armor. There's, there's almost no other description like that in the Bible. It sounds like Greek classic. It sounds like Homer. But there is one other detailed description of armor in the Bible. You know what it is? It's in the New Testament and it's a description of the armor of God's people that's unseen. And all the parts of the armor are defensive except one. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, belt of truth, shoes of the gospel of peace. But there's one weapon. The sword of the Spirit, 
which is what? The Word of the Lord. What does that look like? Uh, something like this. When, when you watch whenever the next round of beheadings happens, and you know, as a Christian, there's all kinds of ways to respond to that. One, one would be to just, I'm just going to ignore that because I don't want to feel it. I don't want to feel how terrible that is. You can do that, but you know, you can't compartmentalize your heart. When you decide not to feel, you're not going to feel much of anything. Well, if I just let myself feel through that, I think it's going to overwhelm me. It is overwhelming. You have got to put your hands on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord, and be able to come at that, not in your own strength, and not in your decision that I'm going to be strong about it, I'm going to face the music, to come to it with the understanding that He has overcome the world through His life and death and resurrection. That He will come and make all things new. That's the truth. The answer to the tragedy of that is not for me to figure out some way to fix it. The word of the Lord is the answer. Who God is is the answer. But it's not just true of the big splashy things in the world. It's true of the battle in here. And I'll end with this. I, the biggest Christian meeting thing I've ever been to was about six years ago in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a big conference called Together for the Gospel. I think it was like 7,000 people there. Just It was a big gathering. And during one of the worship services, we, we sang the song that we're going to end with this morning, In Christ Alone. And I was on an aisle seat, and across the aisle was a young couple, and I met them after what I'm about to tell you about, and they were from Greenville. I'd never met them. They go to another, another church. Young couple, the husband was deaf, the wife was not, but she would sign in worship as her husband did as her way of singing. And in the third stanza of In Christ Alone, there's this phrase where it says, and as he stands in victory, it's talking about Jesus, as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. And what that's saying is not, I never sin anymore. It's saying, sin doesn't own me anymore. Sin is not my Lord. Sin is not the ultimate control of my life. That's what it's saying. So when she's... When she's singing it through sign, when she got to that phrase about sin's curse has lost its grip on me, and I'm going to replicate this the best I can, she's signing and she went, she looked like Jesus wrung sin's neck, like its head off. And I mean, I heard great talks and sermons when I was at that conference. I, I remember so little of it. I just, the main thing I remember from that conference is her doing that. I mean, she looked like sin has lost its curse on me because Jesus beat it. I mean, somebody from the first service came up to me afterward, and it's someone who, uh, I won't say gender, age, anything like that, it's someone who has struggled with pornography. said, I heard you loud and clear. I cannot beat it in my own resources. I can't filter my way out of it. I can't discipline my way out of it. I've got to take this sword that says, you do not own me. Sin will have no dominion over you. I am in Christ. 
I am a new creation. It's the only way there can start to be change. We can't manufacture our rescue. God sent our man to rescue us and our earth. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for any resources we have that are helpful. Thank you for friends, confidants, counselors, church, pastors, mentors. Work through them, we pray, but we pray that we will never turn to them to do something that they just cannot do. And you'll show us if we're doing that. Would you enable us to turn to you and say, the battle is not mine, the battle is yours? To wield the sword, not of our own strength, but of who you are. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think we could say in in many ways this table that we come to um, every week is really...